Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Uh, as people regather, I, I guess I would just like to say uh, one of my pet peeves, and this isn't part of the sermon, but one of my pet peeves is when people refer to the music part of the service as the worship time, um, as if the rest of it isn't. And so all of the service is worship, uh, fellowship is worship, uh, the preaching of God's word is worship, uh, the sacraments are worship, the benediction is worship, uh, all of this is our corporate worship of God together. So, um, so if, you, if you call the music the worship portion, I probably will not correct you in person because I want to be nice, uh, but I think it's something that we can maybe be countercultural about even within the church to, to, to show forth that all of, all of our time together is corporate worship of God. So as I mentioned, uh, last week I was on vacation, and it was mostly a staycation, getting a lot of projects done around the house and, and getting to go to some of my kids' basketball uh, camps and things like that. We did go over to Lake House for a few days, uh, but there was a lot of touch points that were very spiritually encouraging during that time. I, I got extra unhurried time of prayer uh, to read the Bible, to read uh, Christian books, to hear Christian books, to hear Christian podcasts, uh, to do some extended journaling, which is always good for my soul as well. In addition, there were some great times of family worship where we watched some of these alpha videos and discussed them. There were very uh, encouraging spiritual moments during my vacation time. But I also remember being over at the lake house and sitting on the, the, the bench swing at the top of the hill overlooking the lake and thinking to myself, I wonder if there's a God. I wonder if Christianity is true. I wonder if Jesus is real. And if he is, if he is really the only way of salvation. The reality is there are times when I want to kick Satan in the teeth and share Jesus with everyone in the world, but there are other times that I doubt the existence of God and even of Christ. I'm curious, does it disturb you to know that sometimes your pastor doubts his faith, doubts the existence of God, that sometimes I doubt that Jesus is Savior or that Christianity is even true. Does it disturb you that sometimes I struggle with doubts? Or does this comfort you because you can relate? In today's passage, the Pharisees doubt Jesus, which is no surprise. But what might surprise you is that the disciples doubt Jesus too. And the reality is, is that all of us will doubt Jesus. And I think it is so important to acknowledge our struggle of doubt about Jesus so that when we encounter seasons of doubt or when a loved one encounters seasons of doubt, we don't freak out. 
We don't get, uh, we don't get dismayed or, or scared, but we can rest in knowing the faithfulness of God, even when we are unfaithful. So if you would, please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. It is page 843 in the Red Bible. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep, uh, Mark chapter 8. Uh, in the passage just prior to this that, pa- that Jonathan preached on last week, uh, it, it was about the seven loaves uh, that Jesus multiplied to feed 4,000 Gentiles on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus has now uh, boated over to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, firmly into Jerish, Jewish territory. And so uh, we will see here how the Jews received receive Jesus back into the Jewish territory. So Mark chapter 8, verse 11 through 21. This is God's word. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, what does this, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And Jesus left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, all aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And Jesus said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's pray. Lord God, we come today confessing that we are often a doubting people. We may not verbalize it or articulate it, but our anxiety, our fears, our panic reveal that we often doubt your presence, your attention, your goodness, your faithfulness, God. And so, Lord, pray today that as we talk about these doubts, that you, that you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit and through your word would overcome our doubts, that we might rest more joyfully and more confidently in our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And so how should we think about our doubts or our doubting? What should we do with our doubts? Should our doubts worry us or trouble us or dismay us? The better question is, what does Jesus think about our doubts? What does Jesus do with our doubts? Does this worry him or dismay him? You know, while all of us struggle with doubts, what we'll see in this passage are two different types of doubts. There's the doubt of the Pharisees and of Herod, and there is the doubt of the disciples. And while there are similarities between these doubtings, there are also very important differences. And so as we will see, Jesus addresses these doubts in two very different ways. And so let's look at these two doubts. First, we have the doubt of the Pharisees, which we will call a defiant doubting. 
Up to this point in the gospel of Mark, thousands of people have come to Jesus with their doubts, with their questions, with their hopes, and with their dreams. And they are described as sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus has mercy upon them, and humbly they come to Jesus, seeking the truth, trying to figure out if Jesus really is the Christ, if Jesus can provide for their spiritual needs and for their physical needs. And Jesus, in his grace, does this. Jesus teaches them. He miraculously feeds them, heals them, casts demons out of them. Thousands came to Jesus with an open mind, searching and looking for the truth. Even some Pharisees, like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, came to Jesus in humility, seeking the truth, and discovered that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Savior of the world. But then you have the Pharisees in today's passage, and many religious leaders of the day. Their attitude towards Jesus, their questioning of Jesus, what's much different than the thousands that came to Jesus. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus. Does this sound like someone who is searching for the truth? Someone who is coming in humility with open-mindedness to find out what is really true, to, to have their doubts dispelled? No, they came to pick a fight with Jesus. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. This word test in the Greek is perazo, and it also can be translated to tempt. In fact, it's the same word used of when Satan tempts or tests Jesus in the wilderness. And when Satan tells Jesus to throw himself off the temple and let God rescue him, Jesus famously responds by saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's the exact same word with ek, a a pronoun on the beginning of it. The point is this. The Pharisees were not coming to Jesus with their doubts and their questions with an open mind. They were coming with the heart of Satan. They were coming to discredit Jesus no matter what it took. Nothing Jesus could have done would have changed their mind. Thus we see Jesus' response in verse 12. Verse 12, and Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit in exasperation and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now again, we may think, Jesus, just give them a sign. Just give them a sign so they will believe. But Jesus knows no matter what he does, they will not believe. See, by this generation, I think Jesus is talking about a a defiantly doubting generation that no matter what Jesus does, will they believe? I mean, Jesus has already done plenty of signs, hasn't he? I mean, as we have gone through the Gospel of Mark, we have seen how Jesus has cleansed leopard, healed paralytics, people with deformed hands. Jesus calms raging storms, drives thousands of demons out of a single individual. He heals a woman who'd been bleeding for over a decade. He raises Jairus, who's Jairus' daughter, who is a synagogue ruler, raises his daughter from the dead. Jesus feeds over 5,000 plus women and children. Miraculously, as well as over 4,000, Jesus walks on water, casts a demon out of a Gentile daughter. Jesus has done enough signs. They don't need more signs. What they need to do is take the signs that have already been done, repent of their sins, and believe. You see, the Pharisees asking for a sign from heaven to prove Jesus is the Christ is kind of like if my kids said, hey, Dad, buy me an ice cream cone, and I will believe that you love me. I'll say, really? 
An ice cream cone? Like, think about the last 10 years of your life. Think about all of the hugs and kisses. Think about all of the great conversations. Think of all the ways that I have provided food and shelter for you, all the fun things we have done together. Look at all those things. You need an ice cream cone to prove it? No. Look at what I have already done for you. You see, here's the thing. The Pharisees knew about the miracles of Jesus. Matter of fact, they even believed about the miracles of Jesus, but they credited the miracles of Jesus to another place. Look back just a little bit in Mark chapter 3. Verse 22 through 23, I think it's page 838 in the Red Bible. Just flip back a little bit to Mark chapter 3, verse 22. It says, And the scribes, who were also religious leaders like the Pharisees, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? You see, these religious leaders had heard of the miracles of Jesus, and the testimony was so overwhelming that they did not even doubt the miracles of Jesus. They believed that the miracles of Jesus had come true, and so the only thing they could possibly do was discredit, to discredit Jesus by attributing it to Satan indwelling Jesus himself. You see, Jesus had given so many signs The problem was not that Jesus did not give enough signs. The problem was that no matter how many signs he gave, they were determined to not believe. We see other stories like this in the Gospels. Give you two real quick. One in Matthew chapter 12. It says this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except to the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so Jesus is saying, no sign for you except the resurrection. Because of your defiant disbelief, the pagan Ninevites, who did repent and did believe, will stand in condemnation over you. We also have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. They, they die and, and Lazarus, sorry, the rich man goes uh, to hell and is tormented. And he begs Abraham to send a poor man, Lazarus, back to his father's house and to his five brothers to warn them that they might not join him in torment. And Jesus responds this way. He says, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. That's code word for the Old Testament. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, even if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The Pharisees were so defiant and determined in their disbelief, they would not believe that Jesus is the Christ even as he fulfilled the 300 prophecies of the Old Testament, even as he rose from their dead, they were determined in their disbelief. You know, you may be here today and you may say, you know, I will believe in Jesus if he will write my name in the sky. Or I will believe in Jesus if he shows up visually just hovering in front of me, then I will believe in Jesus. Or you may say, if I win the lottery, then I will believe in Jesus. 
Friends, Jesus has done something far greater than this. He has fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, and he has undeniably rose from the dead and appeared to hundreds of people at one time. If you reject Jesus as Lord and Savior, the problem is not the lack of evidence. The problem is that you have never, uh, you have never humbly considered the evidence, or you, like these Pharisees, are a cynic, a defiant doubter, determined to reject the evidence. No more signs will be given to you. You have enough evidence. Jesus calls you to humble yourself, to repent, and to trust that he is the promised Messiah. And so this is one form of doubting, this defiant, determined, disbelieving doubting. But then there is another form of doubting that we see amongst the disciples, and we will call this Doland doubting, Doland doubting. Verse 13, it says, And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. So let's look at the map here really quick on the screen. Uh, what you will see is, so Jesus feeds the 4,000 probably down in this area, which is Gentile country. And then they get in the boat and they come over here to Magdala. And now they are done with their confrontation with the Pharisees again. And they are taking the boat across to Bethsaida. And that's where this passage happens along that route. Verse 13 says, And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The theme of bread dominates this chapter, starting with the feeding of the 4,000. And now Jesus is using bread as an illustration to make a spiritual point. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now the question is, what in the world do the Pharisees, who are Jewish religious leaders, and Herod, who is a polytheistic Roman ruler, that beheaded John the Baptist, what in the world do they have in common? What is the leaven that they share? Well, the leaven that they share is that they heard the teachings of God, they saw the miracles of God, and were still determined and defiant in their doubting and disbelieving that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the world. They would not humble themselves to consider the evidence. They were determined in their disbelief. And so Jesus is warning them, when you face doubting, do not go the path of these Pharisees or of Herod and become determined in your disbelief, but humbly come and search your heart and come to God and let him sway you back to the truth. You see, when we let doubts fester inside of us, when we don't bring them before God, bring them to his word, bring them to the church, what happens is they can start to overtake our lives. When, when I was uh, in high school, um, my, where I grew up, we had neighbors, and they're called the Bakers, really sweet people. Actually, the reason why I was named Daniel was because she convinced my mom to name me after a biblical character. Uh, but anyways, they were Christian scientists. If you know anything about Christian scientists, uh, most of them at least don't believe in, in medical things. And so they don't go to doctors and stuff like that. And they had a son that lived at home. His name's David. And David, I think, was in his mid-40s, a pretty healthy, strapping young man. And uh, anyways, suddenly David passed away. And, and what we came to find out later is that David had had uh, contracted, I guess, I don't know what the right word is, but he, he had gangrene. And, and gangrene is pretty treatable if you go to a doctor. But if you do not treat it, 
it will take over your body and it will kill you. In the same way, Jesus is warning the disciples that doubt that is untreated can spread like gangrene and turn into a cynicism and a defiant doubting and disbelief. It takes just a little bit of leaven or yeast that goes unchecked to make the whole loaf of bread grow, to make this doubt grow and to consume your life. Sadly, I've seen this in the church. I think of a young man who was invested in our church, coming to community group, extremely excited about Jesus. But then another person came into their life and started casting doubt about their faith. Slowly, he stopped coming to church. He stopped coming to community group and and started taking religious advice from non-Christian sources, from secular sources. He watched PBS. PBS told him there is no God. And so he determined there is no God, right? Sadly, he longs to come back to church. He longs to be a part of the church, but he will not because he has allowed this doubt to overcome his life. You probably know people. Some of your grown children at one time seemed on fire for the Lord, but then they moved out. They had doubts like every Christian does. And instead of going to Christ with their doubts, instead of going to the people of God and to the word of God and and to prayer, They simply stopped communing with the church and went to other sources that also don't believe in God and pulled them away from the truth. I want to share this with you, but I I don't want it to seem braggy or pharisaical, but I think it's important. Since my children have been born, I don't think they have missed a Sunday of church except for health reasons. It's been a non-negotiable with Uh, youth sports and with vacation and things, we're always going to church. And the reason is not because our faith is so strong. The reason is because our faith is so weak. We come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday because we need to be reminded of what is true through the preaching of God's word, through through the singing of songs, through the fellowship of the saints, through the sacraments nourishing our souls. You see, if you have a doubt about your physical health, you go to a physician. But if you have spiritual doubts, you come to the people of God. You come to the word of God. You come to God himself in prayer. Jesus is warning his disciples and us of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod to hear the teachings of God, experience the miracles of God, and yet let your doubts overcome into disbelief. And now here's the case study of their disbelief and what they are to do with it. Verse 16. And they, the disciples in the boat, began discussing, can also be translated disputing, (laughs) with one another the fact that they had no bread. Evidently, they were panicked about this. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing or disputing the fact that you have no bread? And then Jesus rifles off these four heart-penetrating questions. He says, do you not yet perceive, that's observe, or understand, are your hearts hardened or dolent? That's why I call this dolent unbelief. Verse 18, have your eyes, have, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? 
You know, we listed out earlier all of the miracles that Jesus has done so far in the Gospel of Mark, and there are many more that are not listed out in the Gospel of Mark. But two of those miracles is, is when Jesus fed literally thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people with just a few loaves and just a few fishes. And yet here in the boat, they're wondering, what are we going to do? We only have one loaf of bread. We're going to starve to death. And Jesus says, are you so dull in your faith? I mean, come on, disciples. Get your head in the game. Like, how could you possibly forget all that Jesus has done? It seems ridiculous that you would be fretting now in the boat when you just a few days ago saw him multiply seven loaves to feed 4,000 people. Why would you think he wouldn't do the same thing for you right now in the boat? It seems ridiculous, their unbelief. But then again, I think we do the exact same thing. We testify to the greatness of God to share stories and testimonies of how God has met us in our dark places, how he has saved us and rescued us and provided for us time and time again. And then we get a bump on our skin and we start freaking out. We have to get in front of people and talk and we panic. We get overwhelmed by life and we run to our sin. Now the question is, how does Jesus treat such doubting disciples? How did he treat the, the doubting disciples in the boat on that day? How does he treat doubting disciples in this room today? Does Jesus shame them? Does Jesus say, I'm done with you. I'm going to find some better disciples out there. Does Jesus just get out of the boat and walk away on the water? We know Jesus could do that. No. Gracious, merciful compassionate, loving Jesus does none of those things. But instead, with these dull-hearted, weak faith disciples, Jesus once again reminds them of who he is and how he has provided for them. And that leads us to our final point, which is defeating doubt. If we in humility bring our dull and doubt, doubting faith to Jesus, how will Jesus help us defeat our doubts? Well, the key of defeating our doubting is in the last word of verse 18. I'm not sure if you caught it. So let's read verse 18 again all the way through verse 21. It says, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? That is to recall or recollect. And so what Jesus does is he helps them remember. Verse 19. When I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? Great question. They said to him, 12. That's right. One basketful for every single disciple. And the seven loaves of bread for the 4,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven, which is the number of fulfillment or completion in the Bible. And Jesus said to them, do you not yet understand? I love this word understand. In the Greek, it is sunimai, and it means to set or to join together in the mind, to join together in the mind, to join together in the mind. And so what is it that the disciples were to join together in their mind? Well, they were to join together in their mind was their present need, their need for bread, their need for food, their need for sustenance, to Take that and join it together with their past experience 
of how Jesus has provided for them miraculously time and time and time again. And so they have these two ideas in their head and they are failing to put them together. And Jesus is saying, put these together. Remember what I have done. Remember how I've been faithful. Remember your need and put these two things together. You see, Jesus is not telling his disciples something they did not know. Rather, Jesus was simply reminding them of something they already knew, that Jesus was powerful and compassionate to multiply loads for thousands of people, and certainly he would do it on the boat that day as well. God commands his people time and time again to remember, to remember what God has done in your life, to remember your salvation, to remember how God has provided for you because the best confidence for future provision of God is remembering how he has provided for you in the past. I've shared this with you before, but just a practical example of how remembering is so important for me. And I know it sounds silly. I'm sorry if I've shared this too much, but Saturdays are tough for me. They're tough for most preachers. Most preachers I know Saturdays are just very hard. They're an anxious day. They're an overwhelming day. They're a frustrating day because you feel like, man, is this sermon ever going to come together? And so this, this is a continual thing for me on Saturdays when I'm preaching. It's just feeling really overwhelmed, frustrated, discouraged, things like that. But what I have to do in those moments and what I've learned to do in those moments, and I don't do it perfectly, is I have to remember. I have to ask myself, hey, did Jesus provide for me last Saturday? Oh, yeah, he did. Did Jesus provide for me the Saturday before that? Oh, yeah, he did. Did Jesus provide for me the 10 years before that? Oh, yes, he did. Jesus has provided Saturday after Saturday after Saturday after Saturday after Saturday. Maybe I could trust him today. Does that make sense? I, I don't know about you, but when I go to the gas pumps, I freak out. I'm like, Jesus, I don't make enough money for this. I can't do this. I'm getting taxes. I'm getting bills. Like Trish will tell you, like, we got all of these bills all at once, and I'm starting to panic. And then I remember, has God ever let me down? Hasn't God always provided for my needs? And the answer is yes. If you want to overcome your unbelief. Go to Jesus. Let him remind you of his faithfulness to you again and again and again over the years. I have a friend who keeps a, a prayer journal throughout the year. She writes down her prayers and writes down how God answers those prayers. And then she has this tradition on New Year. She will pull out that prayer journal and she will remind herself of the faithfulness of God that will bolster her faith to trust in God for the year to come. We can be confident and Jesus for the present and for the future when we remember how he has been faithful to, to us all the days of our life. I want to end with, uh, with a brief illustration and a, a little longer article. Um, about six years ago, I think it was, I was really struggling in my faith. I was going on sabbatical. And I was really encouraged in that time by an illustration that I want to share with you. It's, a, it's an illustration about uh, 
ice, okay? Uh, so when winter comes back to Wisconsin in a few weeks, you know, probably two or three weeks away, uh, the, the ponds will freeze over, right? And if you are an outdoor enthusiast, you will go out on those ponds or out on the bay, and you will either step on that ice or you, if you are crazy, you will drive out on that ice, right? And, and your faith level in that ice may vary, right? You may have a lot of faith that the ice will hold you, or you may have very little faith that that ice will hold you. But here's the thing. What will keep you from falling through the ice is not the strength of your faith in the ice, but rather it is the strength of the ice itself. It's the strength of that thing that you have faith in. Even if it's great faith or little faith, it is the strength of that thing that will hold you up. In the same way, as you struggle with doubts, it's not the strength of your faith that keeps you from falling through but rather it is the strength of the God and your Savior, Jesus Christ, who you have faith in. Amen? Praise God, it's not up to the strength of my faith. Thank God it's up to the object of my faith. The truthfulness and effectiveness of the gospel is not contingent on your degree of faith, but upon the one that you have faith in. Now let me give you a real example. This is the article it's a little bit long. I've trimmed it down quite a bit. But it came out about a year ago. It was written by Greg Laurie, who's a pastor, I think, in California. But he says this. He says, you've heard of the literary classic, A Tale of Two Cities. It's a historical novel by Charles Dickens set in London and Paris during the French Revolution. Well, in the Christian realm, we have our own version of the story. But let's call it A Tale of Two Preachers. One was Billy Graham a modern-day prophet who led a remarkable Christian life and is considered by many as the greatest evangelist of all time. I disagree with that. I think Jesus was, and then Paul, then maybe Billy Graham. But anyways, the other was a Canadian man named Charles, or Chuck Templeton, who sadly, time has mostly forgotten. In the late 1940s, the two were barnstorming evangelists. They traveled the world together, filling auditoriums, halls, even football stadiums, preaching to thousands looking for hope. Many thought Templeton, not Graham, was the one who was going to overturn the world with the gospel. Over time, Templeton no longer accepted many of the basic teachings of the Christian faith, despite his, long, his longing for a personal relationship with God. Templeton succumbed to the lure of intellectual superiority and even made Billy question his faith. For the first time since his conversion, Billy was questioning the truth and dependability of the scriptures. Can the Bible be truly, uh, can, sorry, can the Bible be trusted completely? Billy secretly wondered. Thus began an intensive study of that question with Billy soaking in the writings of theologians and scholars on all sides of the issue as well as the Bible. It was a true crisis of faith, and Billy was racked with doubt. He finally dropped to his knees in prayer and decided that the Bible was God's inspired word, and he would accept every word by faith. Weeks after that spiritual experience, Billy Graham traveled to L.A. to commence his, the campaign that would propel him to international prominence. Heaven is fuller today because of that decision, and hell lost a few more residents. As for Templeton, he drifted away from God and into the wilderness. He eventually left the ministry, got divorced, which by the way, I don't know why, but usually getting divorced and leaving the faith go together. 
and turned his back on all those he had befriended during his years with the church. His 1995 book, Farewell to God, was his parting shot at Christianity and listed the reason why he left the faith. It led to a poignant 1998 interview with author Lee Strobel as he was working on a book that would become a bestseller called The Case for Christ, a journalist's personal investigation of the evidence of Jesus. He tailed Templeton to an apartment in Toronto. Strobel mostly wanted to know how Templeton went from preaching the gospel alongside Billy Graham to agnosticism. When they got to the subject of Jesus, not only did Templeton acknowledge his existence, he also declared he was the greatest human being that ever lived. Strobel asked, you sound like you really care about him. And he responded, well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say it. I adore him. And if I may put it this way, I miss him. This is a man who seemingly left the faith, had talked about his deconstruction of Christianity, and his conclusion was, I miss Jesus. Temple then did something that struck Strobel completely by surprise. He began sobbing uncontrollably. And then the author of this article concludes that Charles Templeton was not as much of an agnostic as he famously claimed he was, in fact, a prodigal son. And like the story Jesus told, the prodigal son missed his home. If the author's assessment of Templeton is correct, it is a great reminder that salvation is not contingent on the strength of our faith, but the strength of the Savior that our faith is in. Christian, let me give you this final exhortation. When you have doubts, and you will have doubts, doubt your doubts. Don't run away from the church. Don't run away from Jesus, but run to God's people. Run to the word. Run to Christ and let gentle, gracious, loving Jesus remind you again and again of his love, his trustworthiness, his faithfulness to you all the days of your life so that you may not disbelieve, but believe and enjoy the confidence of faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm guessing there are some here today that are even in a crisis of faith as we speak, who are wondering if this is all true. And yet you, by your loving, gracious, caring hand, have brought them to the church today to hear this message, to remind them that Everyone struggles with doubt. Even the disciples who walked with Jesus and saw Jesus and experienced the miracles of Jesus, even they doubted Jesus. And yet you, a great and gracious and loving and compassionate and wonderful God, do not give up on us and our doubts. But you remind us, you remind us of the truths and the evidence and your love and your faithfulness. And so God, pray that you would do that again today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.